Hey everyone, welcome to Timeline Scavengers, the podcast specifically designed to last forever. I'm James Anderson, one of your hosts. And I'm Colin Parker, one of your other hosts. On this show, we're going through the MCU in historical order, scene by scene, with no lag until the end of time. That's right, Colin. Okay? And yeah, <laughs> what's what's happening right now? I'm I'm so confused. What's going on, James? Nothing, nothing. I just get so intimidated when we have a guest. I love seeing you humbled. And uh, uh, that makes sense. You, you could almost say that we have a guest this time, and my it's my friend Mark. Mark, hi, welcome back. Hi. How did you enjoy all the Captain Carter stuff in between your two appearances? Uh, very much so. Same. So, Mark, uh, this is the episode. That you specifically, when you first heard about the concept of the show, you're like, I want to do that one for Captain America. Are you still are you still coming to that uh, coming to it with that level of vigor, Viga? Yeah, yeah, Vim and Vim and Viga. Great, Vim and Viga, my favorite, my two favorite vaudeville comedians. <laughs> um, so this is Captain America: The First Avenger, Part One. <laughs> This is Captain America, the first Avenger. Uh, you're going to start at minute 4757, and you're going to end at 5052. It's a musical number, and here is what happens. The clip starts with Steve nervous in the wings of a USO show. Then, the star-spangled man with a plan is performed over a montage of, it, over a montage of him getting more and more confident as he gets more and more famous. Kissing babies... Punching a fake Hitler to the delight of grown-ups and kids alike, giving autographs to beautiful women, and appearing in his own comic book. Mark. Meta. Meta. It's I never met a comic book referencing itself that I didn't like. Mark, tell me what you wanted to talk about with regards to this scene and possibly specifically the star-spangled man with a plan. Panel. Uh, um... I'll tell you. You said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you actually revealed something very interesting to me is that this song was written by someone uh, that I've talked about before on other podcasts that I've done. Yes. So this was written by Alan Menken mm-hmm. and David Zippel. Wow, Alan Menken, um, Disney aficionados will know, was yeah. instrumental in the uh-huh. uh, Disney Renaissance. Instrumental. That. Uh, <laughs> That, that kicked off with Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. And um, um, Menken has worked with several different lyricists since yeah. the passing of Howard Ashman, who was also, who co-wrote, who was the lyricist where Menken was the composer for Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and uh, Little, Little Mermaid. And, and yes, and Little Shop of Horrors. They actually- Hercules um, too, right? Yep. So I have a, a both, whole- They were both on Hercules, right? right. So and Menken yeah. and Zippel. Yeah. Did Hercules oh, Zippel okay. was the lyricist for Mulan. I don't know who the composer was. Donny Osmond. Because he was the singing voice yes, of Yeah. Um the the cool thing about the thing I like about the sequence too, and you mentioned it in your in your recap, you teed it up nicely, how you're seeing Steve get sort of ever more confident as he's making all of his tour stops. I don't know if this was entirely conscious. What really worked for me in this sequence is it's really reminiscent of a similar sequence in Singing in the Rain, mm. where we see Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor's characters working their way from vaudeville up to Broadway. Okay, yeah. 
and I think they're splashing the names of the tour stops. Yeah. Um, along mm. like as they go, and their production gets more elaborate. To yeah. the point there, when they're when they're at their final stop, they're in tuxes and top hats. They're barely dancing or moving at all, <laughs> because because they have these glamorous showgirls all around them, kind of doing all the heavy lifting. And there are lots of sequins, and there may even be like streamers and confetti or something right. like that. And yeah. and I, so I feel like more than anything, this sequence really places a timestamp on, on, on the, the setting, yeah. the, 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 the time and place and getting someone like Alan Menken to write it is great because he's someone who can obviously so well-versed in musical theater is, right. can, can channel someone like Irving Berlin mm. who, who would write many of the great musicals of the thirties and forties. Yeah, um, exactly. And also the and, song and White Christmas, ca- which, yeah, colonists. Absolutely. Yes. Um, <laughs> One of my favorite movies. So, so I, I and, and I, that kind of, I, I feel like that kind of flew under the radar. I guess yeah. Alan Menken, it just kind of is so prolific that, you know, he probably just banged this out before lunch. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, you, oh, you need this? Yeah. Hold on. Uh, two, three, four. Dun, 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 kind of something kind of like this. Dun, dun. <laughs> just like, as yeah. as a side note, Tommy Lee Jones leaving the leaving the room, throwing a quick instrumental over his shoulder. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I mean like it was really hard to like he's credited as like soundtrack like on IMDb. He's it's not right. part of like composer. It's not part of like music by. It's like soundtrack, and it's all the things where like oh stuff from Beauty and the Beast was in this and this and this and stuff from. And so that was where he's credited, which I feel is such a weird place to put this. Well, but it's like it's the the thing about that, right, would be that he wrote a piece of music that was not part of the like underscoring of the movie. It was a right. track that was like literally like a song and dance thing, which right. would be part of like a soundtrack right. um, for a film which is not necessarily the same thing as being a composer for, for like, like, sorry, it is obviously, he still is a composer, but I mean, like he's not doing the composition of the movie. He's doing a soundtrack piece. Right. Um, Like he wrote a, almost like he wrote a fake musical and they included a song from that musical in. Right. Right. Like it's, I I think they do the exact, uh, I would be very confused if it wasn't done the same way, but like the way Hawkeye has the fake, Avengers musical, right? right. It, it, they would do the exact same thing there, where it's right. like you have the person who does the music for the entire show and like all the underscoring of like the scenes and things that are happening, and then you have the person who wrote a track basically for, mm. um, you know, versus like I don't know. It, it's it's a really weird line to walk, but it's like I, I think it's just about the functionality of the piece of music within, because also one of them is not heard by the other characters. Whereas one of them is. Right. Diegetic and non-diegetic. Yeah. Didn't know there was a term yeah, for that. Exactly. Oh, that's very cool. I feel smart. Let me just do a actually weirdly long uh, Avengers Ensemble really quick to get us started. Sure. Avengers Ensemble. All right. So. 
Uh, as we mentioned, we have Alan Menken, uh, that Mark says Menken, which is probably more right, but I like to say Menken, uh, is famous for many things. But uh, what I wrote down was Little Mermaid, Newsies, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Little Shop of Horrors, Enchanted, Tangled, Hercules, and Pocahontas. Uh, he did the music for those. Uh, David Zippel wow. wrote the lyrics for uh, Hercules, Mulan, A Song in Agent Carter, which we'll get to. Um, that that oh, music of the yeah right yeah yeah. Uh, some Wait, jerk who, with a, who wrote the music for that though I I don't know. Oh okay. Probably the guy that wrote the music for Mulan. Um, Donny Osmond. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm a little bit agent. I'm a little <laughs> bit Carter now. Um, <laughs> sense. Uh, on IMDb, some jerk with a camera is credited, which is Tony Goldmark's show. Uh, he huh. included uh, Beauty and the Beast or something. No, uh, Mulan. Something from Mulan in one of the episodes, which apparently took place at Disney, at in like the time period when Captain America was being made, like 2011. We should look into that because it's Whoa. it looks a lot more uh, in depth than uh, I thought. Anyways, uh, and he also wrote the, the lyrics for Pokemon, the first movie, Mewtwo Strikes Back. A song from that. Hell yeah, that rules. That's a great movie. <laughs> Cinema classic. When I was writing down the things, yes, I got to that one and I was like, "Got to include that one for Thank that reaction." That and I was correct. Correct. Uh, the guy that plays Hitler, who is credited as Adolf with a PH, um, it's like you know better, um, is a guy named James Payton. <laughs> Um, who reprised his role as Hitler in The Monuments Men, um, which was that uh, George Clooney steals art with Bill Murray movie. That probably feels bad to be typecast. You know, where yeah, you're like, if that's your handle, why yeah. do I keep getting cast as this guy? The other thing that I knew him from blew my mind. He was uncredited, but he was, he was the guy that portrayed Neville Longbottom's dad in that picture in Harry Potter six, there's a picture of all the order of the Phoenix and he's mm -hmm. in, he's Mr. L Mr. Longbottom. And I was like, he is that that's amazing. Anyways, hmm. that, so his name is James Payton. Great first name and, uh, has played Hitler twice. So <laughs> not great now. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's better than being Hitler okay. twice. Um, Hello, so true. <laughs> All right, so now let's talk about some people that we see during this montage. The first three people are the Star Spangled Singers. Rosanna Holt, no other comic book or nerd stuff. I think several of these people, this was their only thing. Uh, Naomi, Naomi Slights, this was her only thing. Uh, Kirsty Mather, she played Hen in Mamma Mia, which I only wrote down because Dominic Cooper was also in Mamma Mia. And he plays Howard Stark. And I haven't seen in Mama Mama Mia. Mia? In Mamma Mia? In Mamma? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm the greatest scientific mind of all the country, and I might be your father. Um, <laughs> Tony Mama. Tony, Mia. you got a sister. <laughs> Tony Collette stars in. Um, Star Spangled Singer. Oh, I did those. Uh, the Kid in the USO audience. So there are two kids that are trying to warn oh, the kids that are like, look out <laughs> yeah, exactly. behind you. And then As little if he Steve would show fights up in them. Chicago. Um, yeah. Cause he doesn't like people talking in movies. Uh, Megan Sanderson <laughs> and Darren Simpson are their names. They weren't in any uh, other comic book or nerd stuff. I would also like people in, in 
that are listening that have control over this in IMDb. Uh, Darren Simpson is credited as having died in 2017, but the person named Darren Simpson who died in Australia in 2017 was like 30. So it's the wrong, it's the, the, this IMDb has mixed up birth and death dates because this was a child in. I don't remember who this is, but someone recently, someone famous had said that like, they were like, imagine my surprise when I woke up to someone like, I think it was like his wife texting him a link to an article about how he had died. Huh. And he was, you know, cause like, like, it was like a thing where like they had gotten some misinformation. They're like, yeah. Hey, this is kind of funny. Look at this. And he was like, Oh, I'm dead. That's weird. Rumors <laughs> of my demise have been greatly exaggerated for the modern era. Um, <laughs> exactly. There's also a part in a wonder, wonder your song about uh, Ernest Hemingway finding out that he had been dead and, uh, Horribly depressing. Great song. Um, there is a uh, someone credited as Newsstand Mom. This is the woman who is getting her baby kissed by Captain America. Uh, this so woman's name is Fernanda Toker. And she plays an office woman in Avengers. So we will be seeing Ms. Toker again. Oh, as her own descendant. Exactly. And, uh, hey, Colin, you could not have made a better transition because Autograph Seeker, who is the woman who says hi and is pretty, and the next one... (gasps) Yes. ...is Laura Haddock. She's a... Oh, God. uh, Isn't she the same lady that gets gets pregnant and has Star-Lord? She is Star-Lord's mom. Yeah, it's a weird way you put that, but like... Uh, It's because for some reason, I could... (laughs) I, the thing is, I meant to say like she meets ego and then they have a kid, right. but like I couldn't remember that character's name, so I just just like I, uh, she gets pregnant and has Star Lord, which oh, is I was not a have great way of presenting trivia, that. But. I forgot. Anyways, yeah, yeah, no, oh. exactly. No, no, no. I, that's fine. That's fine. I would have forgotten. I, yeah, anyway. sorry, my bad. Um, I thought trivia was the name of something she'd been in, but then I realized that I hadn't denoted something well. She was also in Transformers Five, um, and. So yeah, she plays uh, Meredith Quill in both Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy Two. And so the Marvel huh. MCU fandom, being the amazing people that they are, have retconned this woman to be Peter Quill's grandmother. That's really cool. I'm like, that's how you well, do it. Well, you know, they did that as well with, uh, forgive me for not remembering the, the actor's name, but the guy who's in the Howling Commandos. Uh, right, who's, who's also, Trey's, Trey's grandfather. Trip's yes, grandfather. Yeah. No, 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 no. There's a guy who is in the Howling Commandos who is also the principal right. for in Spider-Man. Yes. And so what they did was, is to make it work, they have an old picture of him in the war outfit, like on his, like, like you know, uh, like, what's it called? Like the the thing that you pull out, a uh, filing cabinet. He has like cabinet. a filing cabinet that has like a picture of himself in uniform yeah. to be like, that's my grandpa. Yeah. So like, it's cool when they do things like that in my yeah. opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I do want to remember to put both Meredith and Peter Quill on my characters mentioned because uh, it's going to be cool to be like, we mentioned them last time ever. Okay. <laughs> Briefly. Right. Exactly. Um, About so- how she got pregnant. Oh, yikes. Bad, Oof, yeah, bad, yeah. bad work, Colin. Oof, ego trip. Um... <laughs> Sorry, so um, before I say this, I'm going to say this. One of the USO dancers, whose name is Caroline Royce, played a mm-hmm. weeping angel on Doctor Who okay. on two different episodes, but neither of those episodes was the sh- the episode Blink, where the weeping angels first appear. Yeah. She's on subsequent episodes as weeping angels. 
With that said, okay. here's everyone that played a USO dancer or drummer on this thing. Uh, no wow. one else has any other things besides this. So, ready? Here we go. No other instruments, you mean? Exactly. Um, hmm. Jennifer Abbott's Michael... Michelle Antrobus, Lucy Dean, Aaron Dusek, Nicole Evans, Lizzie Franklin, Emma Harris, Rachel Isherwood, Danielle Kelly, Nicole May, Stevie Jean McGuire, Anna McNicholas, Rosie Pethelis, Jessica Powell, Rye Quarterly, who was on who was credited as Rachel Quarterly at the time, Sarah Riches, Holly Rostron, Caroline Royce, we've mentioned, Stephanie Jane Thompson, Lucy Waugh, and then the drummers were Billy Lazowski, Greg Paulette. Adam Birch, Adam Kent, William Morris, David Sadal, Paul Simmons, Mark Wheeler, Chris Diggy, and Michael Humphrey. That's way more drummers than I remember being in that scene. I look I after I knew that there was a whole bunch of drummers, there's a part where a button probably what like, you know, eight drummers sort of march by it when they have they're singing in the rain on Broadway, they have a whole bunch of budget really for people. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, I I'm, I feel like I was like thinking it's like probably three, maybe four at most. Yeah, but eight is a lot. I yeah. feel like. Um. Yeah. So those are all the credited people that I could find. Um, there are mm-hmm. other people that are credited as like theater patron, and I didn't write down their names because again, this would be a lot of list of names. But I would like to anyone who puts their name on IMDb as I was an extra in Captain America: The First Avenger. I was a theater patron. I'm putting it on my IMDb. I commend you as always. Um. So, let's talk a little bit about the USO and war bonds. Uh, and then I just have one or two things about Captain America, and then we're going to get out of here. I know it's an audio thing, so I just want to point out that you said war bonds, and Mark did like a really smooth like eyebrow wiggle, like, oh, hey. So, well, Mark likes war bondage. Um, so, <laughs> USO... Uh, he has a war machine at home. All right. So the USO was founded in 1941 by Marv Ingram in response to a request from President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, not a Whoa. target of the Chronicoms, and protected by Agent Wobbles, to provide morale and recreation Call services that. to U.S. uniformed military personnel. Roosevelt was elected as its honorary chairman. Again, that's like that's- an honorary doctorate. <laughs> Wait, wait. Uh, oh my also, god. Also, that's really <laughs> terrible. Agent Wobbles was not elected as any sort of honorary chairman. This request brought together six civilian organizations: the Salvation Army, YMCA, Young Women's Christian Association, the YWCA, because we should keep them separate. National Catholic Community Service, the National Travelers Aid Association, and the National Jewish Welfare Board. Uh, they were brought together under one umbrella to support US troops as opposed to operating independently as some had during the First World War. Roosevelt said he wanted, quote, these private organizations to handle the on-leave recreation of the men in the armed forces, in armed forces, end quote. According to historian Emily Yellen, quote, the government was to build the buildings and the USO was to raise private funds to carry out its main mission, boosting the morale of the military. After being formed in 1941 in response to World War II, centers were established quickly in churches, barns, railroad cars, museums, castles, beach clubs, and log cabins. Um... So that's what these USO centers is one. This is where we see them performing all over the country. Most centers offered recreational activities such as holding dances and showing movies, get to the cartoon. And there were the well-known free coffee and donuts. Some USO centers provided a haven for spending a quiet moment alone. Con perked up at free coffee and donuts. I did. did Nothing wrong with that. Part of the deal. Sometimes the O in USO is replaced by a donut. Um, you know what I would say to that? 
U.S. Oh, that gives um woof. Uh, they were provided as a haven for spending a quiet moment alone or writing a letter home, while other <laughs> or a movie or a concert or whatever, while others <laughs> spir- offered spiritual guidance and made childcare available for military wives. But the organization became mostly known for its live performances called camp shows through which the entertainment industry helped boost the morale of its servicemen and women. USO Camp Shows Incorporated began in October 1941, and by that fall and winter, 186 military theaters existed in the United States. Overseas shows began in 1941 with a tour of the Caribbean. (laughs) You can see how they sold that to the people. We're going to go overseas. Okay. To the Caribbean. All right. Uh, within five months, 36 overseas units had been sent within the Americas, the United Kingdom, and Australia. And during 1942, 1,000 performed as part of, the, of 70 units. Average, perform, average performers were paid $100 a week. I think that means performers were paid an average of $100 a week, but maybe... Nope, top stars were paid $10 a day because their wealth let them contribute more of their talents. <sighs> Capitalism. Um, so now, uh, speaking of capitalism, this is what, uh, they're ta- what they're Cap. selling. What's that? Capitalism. Capitalism. Capitalism America. Um. No, cause like Captain America, Cap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Capital. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, the first savings bonds, Series A, were issued in 1935 to encourage saving during the Great Depression. They were marketed as a safe investment that was accessible to everyone. They were followed by Series B, C, and D bonds over the next few years. Uh, marketing as a defense as a defense savings bond, the first Series E bonds Series E bond was sold to President Franklin D. Roosevelt on May first, nineteen forty-one, by Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau, and you know that was like, all right, we got to sell this, we got to get that photo op. Uh, after the December nineteen forty-one attack on Pearl Harbor brought the United States into World War II, Series E bonds became known as war bonds. Um. It says uh, the War Finance Committee was placed in charge of supervising the sale of all bonds and the War Advertising Council promoted voluntary compliance with bond buying. Popular contemporary art was used to help promote the bonds, such as Any Bonds Today? A 1942 Warner Brothers theatrical cartoon. I just want to pause here for a second. Mark, have you ever seen the theatrical cartoon Any Bonds Today? That actually does not ring a bell. Wow. All right. All right. Cool. Go, can can you track Sorry. it? Can you track it down and uh, and 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 report back? I can. Great. Will you? Right now. <laughs> Get out of here! <laughs> Don't come back until you know about any bonds today. Um, more than a quarter of a billion dollars worth of advertising was donated during the first three years of the National Defense Savings Program. The government appealed to the public through popular culture, such as Norman Rockwell's Norman Rockwell's painting series, The Four Freedoms which toured in a war bond effort that raised $132 million. Bond rallies were held throughout the country with famous celebrities, usually Hollywood film stars, but some super soldier serum recipients to enhance the bond advertising effectiveness. Many motion pictures during the time, especially war dramas, a form of propaganda itself, the Wikipedia article said parenthetically, included a graphic (laughs) shown during the closing credits advising patrons to, quote, buy war bonds and stamps, which were sometimes sold in the lobby of the theater. You, you can find your war bonds at the bottom of your bucket of popcorn. The Music Publishers Protective Association associ- encouraged its members to include patriotic messages on the front of their sheet music, like buy U.S. bonds and stamps. 
Over the course of the war, 85 million Americans purchased bonds totaling approximately $185 million. Um, which means that that Norman Rockwell tour raised all but $53 million of the, all the whole thing. Norman Rockwell, famous painter. Um, he, he rocked well. He, mm, yeah. yeah. Norm in Rockwell. Um, uh, so just a couple of things. One of the things that we mentioned at the, in the synopsis is that you see the Captain America number one, which depicts him punching Hitler in uh-huh. tribute to his USO performance, which is the actual cover of Captain America comics number right. one, uh, which came out in December 1940. So a good, uh, like two years, maybe year and a half before this, uh, this would have come out, but again, it's an alternate universe where this comic book came out later. Uh, it has a cover date of March 1941 because, again, cover dates refer to when you should stop having them on the shelf. Uh, it th- this cap this uh, this comic saw the first appearances of Steve Rogers and as yet unnamed uh, Phillips, who is a general and he's a colonel in this, uh, Bucky, and Heinz Kruger, who everyone who's listening knows is the guy that killed. Uh, Erskine, thank you. Um, but uh, we don't because we haven't recorded that yet. So uh, the other thing that I find hilarious about that first comic is that the FBI, uh, the head of the FBI in this comic book is named J. Arthur Grover, which is hilarious because it's like, okay, it's not J. Edgar Hoover. Okay, everyone, we're on board with this. It's just one to the left of that. <laughs> <laughs> and then also... Uh, Erskine's name in that comic was Professor Reinstein, which is also hilarious because it's like, all right, we can't actually depict Einstein. Reinstein, got it. And then they have uh, retconned it to be that Reinstein was his code name uh, so that people wouldn't know that he was uh, who he was. The shield that Captain America has that he reads his lines off the back of, which I thought was hilarious, um, that then he doesn't need at the, uh, by the end. Uh, it uh, is called a heater style shield, which is uh, the shield that you see knights have once they have better leg armor because it doesn't cover your legs. Um, I don't know why it's a heater style. Um, I don't know. Uh, But after complaints by comic book publisher MLJ, a.k.a. Archie Comics, that the design was too similar to that of its own patriotic hero, The Shield was the name of the character, uh, Timely Comics, which would become Marvel Comics, replaced the triangular shield with a disc-shaped one that we all know uh, now and also have seen referenced uh, twice in this movie so far. Um, uh-huh. And then finally, during the... This is a trivia from the IMDb. During Captain America's Warbond Drive, the tank burning in the background of the black and white film that we see that none of the actors in that movie are credited on IMDb, which is super cool is an M5 Stuart tank, which is an American tank, but it's painted with a German insignia. And it says, this is correct to 1940s Hollywood filmmaking as they had no actual German tanks, so they'd paint US vehicles with German sigils. And that's it, that's all I have. That's a, this has been a James Anderson brand info dump and uh, looking at the faces of my two co-hosts riveted from, from uh, stem to stern, as they say. Here's a fascinating thing for you about uh, any bonds today, because I did look it up while you were talking about it. Uh, are you aware Bugs Bunny just straight up does blackface in 
in the video? No, but I'm not surprised. I mean, cartoons were horribly Wait, what, racist. What do you? What do you? Which short are you talking about? Any bonds? Any today? bonds today? Oh, I. I wonder if that's one of the, so there's a set of Warner shorts called the censored 11, which were taken out of syndication in the sixties and seventies when they would show them on TV and, and you can find them on YouTube. Yeah. I, I imagine so because I was thinking about how they shouldn't technically be public domain yet. And, and this one is listed as public domain. And I'm assuming it's because they essentially just like forfeited it to just be like, it can be like a historical, like, like we're moving on, like learning from the past kind of thing. Right. But like they're distancing themselves from it. So it has that that thing at the Makes beginning, sense. like that uh, message. It doesn't beginning. on YouTube, but like it, I bet you, if if for some weird reason, if they ever put it on HBO Max, it would definitely have that at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 rough when like you know there's a. There's a, a Marx Brothers song in the best Marx Brothers movie, The Big Store, that it has like it's not blackface. It's still offensive like blackface though. Mm-hmm. Um it has like, you know, black people singing, but they are the most ickly stereotyped sort of things go wait, Mark, is it blackface? There is literal blackface in the day at the races. Right, that's what I'm thinking of. That's why the big story is better. There's, there's sort of like a little shanty town, yeah, that lives right by the sanitarium. That's populated by, yeah, Wolf. yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that it was like, hey, that sucks a lot. Sure does. But there's also to stick with the World War II theme. There's a just. Just to be totally clean, I won't even say the title, but there's a Bugs Bunny short um, where he Bugs Bunny lands in a on a like an island in the Pacific, and uh, he torments the Japanese soldiers on the island, and you know they all have you know big black rim glasses and right, buck teeth and and yeah, yeah, it's. And and the names he calls them too. <laughs> it's, Jeez. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's fascinating historical stuff. That bully wanted to watch the cartoons because they were horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Bring on the cartoons! I want to see propaganda. Yeah. He's like, stop with the propaganda. I want to see racism. This is my <laughs> America, baby. That's what he was saying. Wars bringing on racism. Uh, crazy the, world that does make sense so the how could that be i think the most famous example of like cartoon propaganda is actually disney there's a donald duck short yep. called der Fuhrer's face mm-hmm. which was a, a hit on the charts the song mm. and it's donald having a nightmare that he is a nutsy and he lives in nutsy land mm-hmm. yeah but yeah so i mean I think it's this, this, uh, there are some lines in this song that I really, really liked. Like, I especially like to put a noose around the goose stepping, whatever, whatever. Um, yeah. The, there's some good, uh, it actually makes sense that the guy who wrote the lyrics for uh, Mulan did this because that has similar sort of really good internal rhyme stuff going on. And also the song Reflection, which is also extant. 
Hey, actually, you know what? We'll have already talked about uh, Mulan in this. In this, uh, we, we have, we have, we have, yeah, exactly. When Az was yeah. on, when Az was on. No, I mean we talked about Mulan. Uh, just when we first introduced uh, Melinda May, too. Right. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. But uh, recent, recently, when we recorded with Az about the the flag, like the pulling the pin on the flag thing, I I will have brought up. Um, we haven't we haven't actually recorded it yet. That may that makes yeah. so much more sense. And I was yeah. like, this doesn't ring any bells. I was but like, what are you talking about? It, when they when he's like the first person that gets to get this flag down can ride home with right. Agent Carter, and he just pulls the pin at the bottom. That's a very yep. Mulan. I mean, it's not Mulan because she does the go up right. thing. But like, anyways. So yeah, that's it. That's all I have, uh, Colin. You want to take us out of here with some social media? Sure. Uh, so thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Timeline Scavengers. Uh, if you are looking for more Timeline Scavengers goodness and also potentially more Scavengers Network goodness in general, in addition to checking out the shows on the network, you can also go over to patreon.com slash the Scavengers Network. Uh, for just $2 or more a month, you can get access to all the bonus content that we put out. Um, for this show alone, we've so far done uh, a small blooper reel. Um, I'm going to at some point put out another blooper reel for some stuff for us. Um, we also have a, uh, a TTRPG, like one shot of us doing a, a little game where we are pretending to be agents of shield for our, uh, timeline scavengers annual number one. And we're going to be doing more of those every year where we'll take characters that we've discussed during that year and use them for like a one shot, which I think is very fun and very cool. Uh, and uh, also on the Patreon from us is James went through and watched all of the blooper reels of every Marvel movie uh, and then ranked them. Uh, so you can find all that stuff and so much more on patreon.com slash the scavengers network. Mark is um, uniquely. I talked about how people on the scavengers network don't really know about my affection for gag reels. Mark is actually uniquely qualified to speak about my affection for gag reels. He would come over before class in college and we would literally just watch the gag reels from like, like friends, DVDs and stuff. It was, uh, it was a fun time. He like, would quote, quote gag reels. Exactly. Yeah. That, you know, oh. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's a deep cut. I feel like. Exactly. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's like it a was. B side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like it a, was, but it was just... out. Yeah. I was about to say it was a special, but it was a very special language. Yeah, exactly. I can remember none of them. Can you remember any of them? I I remember the specifically the friends like you don't have to be Jewish to be helped by Chabad. (laughs) Chabad, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I do this all the time. Where he's like, "Which one do you want to do? Whatever." And then there's a it's a James an emotion. Yeah, it's not a it's a visual joke, but. Anyways, yeah. enough uh, reminiscing with my kind of shrug eh, face, and and then you lean side to yeah. side like you're weighing the options. Exactly. Just like uh, Ahmet measures the people's fates uh-huh. uh, in Moon Knight, which, as the time of recording, is still airing. In fact, the episode five will air in just a couple of hours at mm-hmm. uh, the time of this recording. By the time you hear this, the whole season will be out. So. Go watch that, and we'll talk about that show in about 10, 15 years. I'm hoping um, tomorrow's or next week's is going to take us to ancient Egypt and we have to do a pickup episode. That's my hope. I would love to do a pickup episode for this show. Yeah. I think it's actually kind of wild that we haven't had one. For, it I, mean, almost I guess feels it also kind of makes sense. Eric Martin I, yeah, is spreading the word I, not to have. It, 
Yeah, uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense where, like, the whole purpose isn't to necessarily look at, like, Kanshu. It's to look at, like, specifically initially Steven, then you find out it's really Mark. Anyway, yeah. we're getting... We're yeah. getting into the to, into the reeds here. Into the reeds. Because uh, the reeds are okay. Oh, uh, no. <clears throat> Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on this episode. And same to you, dear listeners. Uh, we will see you soon for a brand new episode of Timeline Scavengers. Uh, but in the meantime, as always, I'm Colin Parker. I'm James Anderson. And I'm Mark Hutchins. Excelsior. was a little more spooky. Hi, everybody. My name is Jordan Reed. And I'm Lindsay Reed. And this is Spooky Spouses, a podcast about ghosts and stuff. Tall tales. If you ever want to find out if a psychic is real or not, commit a crime (laughs) and then go to them and ask about the crime. Cryptid technology. That's why we can't find Bigfoot, because they don't have trackers. They don't have these apps that are like, here I am, going to the ice cream store later. Scary stories. (laughs) You know what you're going to do? What? Crap your pants. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. Numbers in general. I just hear or see numbers and my brain shuts off. You can find brand new episodes of Spooky Spouses every week, wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Excuse me, part of the Scavengers Network. The Scavengers Network. Creator-driven. Community-focused. Treasured content.